0: Open your Bible to Jeremiah, chapter 14. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 14. It's our intent to get into chapter 15, verse 9. That's the unit of thought. The topic we find there, although Jeremiah's prayers are largely ineffective, God considered him one of the Bible's great intercessors, and their talk in these verses communicates volumes about our intimacy with God, the title of our message this morning. What we've got here is a Savior to communicate. Let's have a word of prayer. Some of you got that. Some of you did. Ask somebody who got that what that meant. Father, thank you for our morning. We absolutely love to be in your presence with other saints. If there was a way we could work it out, Lord. We do it every day. But well, Lord, when we do come together, it's really precious. It's really wonderful because of the way that you've promised to reveal yourself. Certainly, you're with us, you're in us. But Lord, when we come together as a fellowship, you're here in a special way. And so I pray that as the word is read and taught, Lord, it would be directed at each individual heart by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we would hear what you want us to hear, that these would be your whisperings, for others, perhaps your shoutings, but Lord, that we would know that we've been in the presence of the living God, the God who rose from the dead and lives forevermore. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I want to let you in on a secret. I sometimes get discouraged when I read about the effective prayer lives of God's saints. George Mueller always comes to mind. In the 1800s, he established 117 schools, which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children, most of them orphans. Mueller prayed about everything and always expected his prayers to be answered positively. There are dozens, if not hundreds of stories about his answered prayers, miraculous answers at that. On occasion, a person would ask George Mueller, what if God doesn't answer your prayer? He would tell them that such a failure on God's part was impossible. Man, however, had the responsibility to meet certain conditions before expecting an answer from God. Well, now I'm doubly discouraged. Not only do my prayers sometimes seem ineffective, but the reason given by someone whose prayers were seemingly always effective is that I fail to meet certain spiritual conditions. What if I were to tell you that one of the greatest intercessors of all time was mostly ineffective and that it had nothing to do with his failure? Well, it's true. It's Jeremiah. In our text, God will compare Jeremiah's intercession for Judah to that of two other great Old Testament men of prayer, Moses and Samuel. Samuel. He considered Jeremiah a giant when it came to prayer. Nevertheless, Jeremiah's prayers of intercession for Judah had absolutely no effect on averting God's judgment. Perhaps we need to change our ideas of what constitutes an effective prayer life. Maybe it's more important prayer be affective, meaning it recognizes that you are in a dialogue with the living God. Affect is primarily concerned with getting results where affect is more about relationship. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Your praying is effective when you realize God is present, and your praying is effective when you remember God has promised. Let's take a look, first of all, at God's presence in verses 1 through 18. We believe, obviously, that prayer is simply talking with God. If uh, almost any Christian, uh, if you, you know, you come forward at a, a meeting or a church service or a concert or a, a stadium event, and, and the first thing you're told is that you need to pray, and pray is simply talking with God. But right after we say that prayer is simply talking with God, we have a tendency to turn it into a religious activity. We identify five or 10 or 20 different types of prayer. I remember and. I don't want to offend anybody this morning, so if you follow a system like this, I'm really not you know, criticizing this, but I remember when I first became a Christian, as an encouragement for me to pray, first I was told that prayer was just talking to God, which seems simple, but as an encouragement for me to talk to God, I was given a little acrostic uh, based on the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, and it was adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and it's a formula that I was taught. This was in Calvary chapels, a formula for proper prayer. So prayer is just talking to God, but in order to do it, I have to first adore God. Then I have to confess my sins. Then I need to be thankful for everything. And then and only then can I bring my supplications before God. And, and, and so maybe you don't see a disconnect there, but over the years I have. I can't just simply talk. Can I just simply talk to God? And can all of those things come up in that conversation or do I have to go through that formal approach to God in order to become George Mueller? And so that's what we're talking about this morning. I hope after we talk this morning, you'll be more encouraged to talk to God all the time and less inclined to see prayer as an, uh, a religious duty. Uh, we teach seminars on how to teach people to pray. We assume that people don't pray or don't want to pray. I think they don't want to pray because we've made it formal and we've told them that they can't just talk to God. Uh, why, would you, wh- why wouldn't you want to talk to God if he was hanging around? I mean, wouldn't you? If you had a chance to talk to some famous person that you uh, idolized, wouldn't you take advantage of it and ask him all the questions that you could, take pictures with them and stuff like that? But with God, it's assumed that we're, we don't really want to talk with him. We have to be challenged to talk with him. We keep lists of our asking and God's answers, implying that only those prayers that are answered are actually effective prayers. I don't really keep a list of the things my wife and I talk about, do you? If you do, you're in trouble. You're not thinking. Sit down, you husbands especially, if you have to bring out a book and say, okay, yesterday we talked about this, talked about these three things, and your wife is gonna come in for counseling, I'm telling you right now because she's going to understand that you're not listening to her, that you don't understand that you're in a relationship with her, a dialogue with her. You're doing something formal to, that is less than intimate, and, and yet that's what we do to God. Now, God measures effectiveness differently than we do. He's going to tell us that Jeremiah is among the great intercessors of the Bible, something we would never conclude from a review of the effect of his prayers. You might say that Jeremiah was a great prophet ministering in a difficult time, but if you were on a test asked, Was Jeremiah one of the great intercessors based on his effectiveness, you'd have to say no. Because his prayers for the people of Judah largely went unanswered. So let's take a look. The first six verses set the stage for Jeremiah to talk with God. Uh, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They mourn for the land, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. The nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land, the plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but they left their young, it is implied, because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. Now, in his covenant with the Jews, God promised abundant rain for their crops if they would walk in obedience to him multiple seasons of droughts were a direct judgment from god upon judah for disobedience things were in one sense easier in the old testament because if it rained god was blessing you if it was a drought god was not pleased with you i mean it was it was either or it's harder for us as new testament believers to analyze circumstances Often, God buffets you when you are walking the closest to him, and he can seem to be blessing a person when they are actually backsliding. He doesn't do it to confuse you, but it's actually to draw you closer to him on a moment by moment basis. God doesn't want to be a distant deity whose favor you can earn or spurn. He wants to be intimate, up close, and personal with you. And so circumstances are important for the New Testament Christian. We have to factor them in, whether they seem good or bad, but ultimately, um, if it's raining in your life, uh, you can't be sure by that alone that God is in favor of you or if you're being disobedient. There's a whole lot of other personal things that you need to talk to God about. Jeremiah talked to God about the droughts beginning in verse 7. He says, Lord... Though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Jeremiah believed that God was in their midst. He believed and he knew that God was present among them. Further, he understood that God was their hope and their savior. God was acting like a stranger just traveling through who refused to get involved. He was acting like a soldier, but one who was too astonished or too terrified to fight. Have you ever told God he was acting like a stranger towards you or a deserter? You may have felt that way. You may be feeling that way right now on account of some trial or tragedy. You you might not be able to vocalize it, you might not be comfortable telling somebody, but I know there's been times in my life, and there must be times in your life, where you think, God, you seem like you're a stranger. You've promised to be here for me, to never leave me or forsake me, but I feel forsaken. I know you're a mighty warrior, but you seem to have laid down your weapons, terrified, while the enemy is pummeling me. A.W. Tozer said, The notion that there is a God, but that he is far away, is not embodied in the doctrinal statement of the Christian church. Isaac Watts wrote this in poem form. He said, within thy circling power I stand. On every side I find thy hand. Awake, asleep, at home, abroad, I am surrounded with my God. And so Jeremiah, he was feeling perhaps that God was acting that way, but at the same moment, he said, God, you're like a stranger. You're, you're like a terrified soldier. You are, though, however, in our midst. I know that you are because you said you are. Doctrinally, we would call this God's omnipresence. I mean, it's one of the big attributes of God. God is everywhere present. We know that. But we must learn to practice his presence. Maybe we should call it practipresence. So there's, uh, God is omnipresent, but is he practipresent? present?" Uh, Do we recognize his presence at our shoulder, at our side? Jeremiah was, in fact, practicing the presence of God because God really couldn't be a stranger. He couldn't be a deserter. He was there in their midst. He was their hope. He was their savior. And so in verse 10, thus says the Lord to this people, they love to wander. They've not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Historically, the nation of Judah had passed a point of no return. They refused to repent even after 40 years of Jeremiah pleading with them. Yes, it's possible to pass a point of no return with God, but since we cannot see the hearts of men, our attitude ought to be that that point of no return doesn't come until death. Sometimes I think there's an individual who just is so wicked or so sinful or is so out there that they're just never going to get saved. But the point of no return for us is isn't until after death. Until then, we urge men everywhere to repent and to trust the Lord, no matter how unlikely it may seem that they would come to know the Lord. Uh, and so, yes, Judah, God knew that Judah had passed the point of no return, and he said it's time for judgment, even though he still put off his judgment for many decades I mean, this is, we'll see in a minute, this has been going on for about a 100 years, actually, but Jeremiah comes on the scene towards the end. Uh, but in our case, we need to remember that where there is life, there is hope. Verse 13, then I said, Lord, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. God told Jeremiah, don't pray for this people for their good, Jeremiah's response was to go right on seeking their good, pointing out that the people were being deceived by false prophets. Now, this is interesting because you'd think that in the school of prayer, when God said, quit praying and don't ask for their good, you'd think he flunked out if you disobey God. But Jeremiah kept on praying. And that's because he didn't think of himself as being in a school of prayer I don't think he even thought about what he was doing as offering intercessory prayer. He was simply talking to and with the Lord. You remember when Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah? We studied it some months ago. He and God had a meal together. And then they walked out, and the Lord started talking to him. And Abraham said, now, you know, would you destroy this place for 50 people? And God said, now, how about 40 and 35 and 20? He went through these numbers and stuff. And and then we study that as a great example of intercessory prayer. And he is definitely interceding for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But isn't he just talking to God who is right there with him? Is there anything formal about it at all? In fact, it's extremely informal and it's intimate. It's almost forward. It's the kind of thing that your kids ask you, you know, that other people are afraid to ask you. But because they know what? They've got an in with you. They're your kids. You can't say no to them. I remember when my daughter first got married, I was kind of half serious, actually. I said, you're going to have to turn in the key to your house. And my wife went crazy. She said, oh, no. I go, well, she's going to be married. She's going to have her own house. I, you know, She's not our kid anymore. And Pam said, yes, she is. What's the matter with you? And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. So anyway, good thing for Pam, right? Now, you don't have the key to my house, I hope. Maybe you do. Some things have been moving around. But anyway, but, you know, so, I mean, my daughter, my son, they can come into our house any Out of courtesy, sometimes they knock, sometimes they don't. But if they want to come and grab stuff or do stuff, that's fine. You know, they don't do it often, but they do it because we have a relationship. There's an intimacy. There's, a, there's something there. And that's how Abraham talked to God as the friend of God. He didn't go to intercessory prayer. He, didn't, he wasn't burning incense at the time wasn't walking through a prayer labyrinth while he was talking to Abraham he was, or talking to God. He just said, hey, can we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah? And that's the kind of thing Jeremiah is doing. So be careful when you study this as intercessory prayer, understand that it was just a dialogue between God and Jeremiah, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their own heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed." And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, them nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. If you are deceived by a false prophet or a false teacher, it's not God's fault. He's given you his word as a measure to test all things. And you don't have to be a genius. I don't have to be a scholar. I don't even have to know original languages to be able to take the simple word of God and measure uh, teachings and prophecies about it uh, and from it. And and so, you know, Jeremiah's trying to say that, well, these guys think these prophecies are from you, and God says, yeah, they're not. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God made a statement. He says, if if something happens and, you know, Somebody um, does a, a sign or a wonder, but they don't do it in my name, don't follow that person. So God goes so far as to say, somebody might even do a miracle or what appears to be a miracle, but you've got my word to follow. And so we wanna judge everything according to that. Verse 17, therefore you shall say this word to them, let my eyes flow with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke with a very severe blow If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. God is describing himself in these verses as a father whose virgin daughter was taken violently, whose people were slain and sick. It brought him no pleasure to allow the Jews to be overrun by the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It brought God pain. And so you see here, God is sharing his heart with Jeremiah. He shared his grief, his sorrow, his pain, his disappointment. Prayer then isn't just about getting God to do something or to not do something. It's about getting to know God. And so Jeremiah is talking and God says, well, let me share how I feel about this. This is difficult for me as well, Jeremiah. Israel is like my virgin daughter being captured and taken away and and abducted and abused. I see my people in death and famine. They've brought this on themselves. I have to act in discipline, but it's not that it doesn't affect me. And so God is present. He's omnipresent. Wherever you are, there he is in your midst. Because his presence is spiritual, we can think him distant. For example, in literature and in film, there are certain characters who can be called upon in time of great need. From my recollection of the Star Wars movie, Obi-Wan Kenobi is sort of like that. Every now and then, Luke Skywalker can cry out for his help, and Obi-Wan can remind him, use the force. You know, He just kind of comes to him in his time of greatest need. And, and if you think about it, there's lots of movies where there's some kind of person or being or, th- you know, where they're not really there, they're distant and far, but in your time of greatest need, you know, they'll come to you and reveal truth to you. I dare say sometimes without meaning to, we think of God that way. We go about our day as if he is in his distant heaven, knowing that we could call upon him at great need to use the force, as it were, to help us. That's why we think of prayer only in terms of its effectiveness when in reality its affect on our lives is most critical. By his spirit, you know, God lives in you. He tells us in the Bible that he is especially desiring to manifest his presence when Christians get together. So God is present. He's here in our midst. We should talk to him as if we understood that, as if we're turning to him to address him directly rather than sending long-distance messages to heaven. We should practice his presence. We should be like Abraham, who was called the friend of God, because we too are now called, what, the friends of God by Jesus. And so if my praying is something different than talking to God who is right next to me, in a sense, I think I'm, I'm starting to drift away from the intimacy of the relationship that Jesus wants me to have with God. And that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, we are against so much of the formal praying that people want to return to today. If you survey some of the Christian landscape, a lot of churches are moving back into a formal kind of, we call it liturgical or a high church way of approaching God. I mentioned prayer labyrinths. They're like mazes that people set up where you walk for a while and then there's a station where you have an object you know, and and then you pray and then you move. And if all this sounds strange to you, it should. Because Abraham didn't do that and he was an Old Testament guy right? If anything, we have greater access to God. I know God was standing right next to him in a theophany, but God lives in us, and he's omnipresent. And especially when we get together, he's there. And so be careful. Obviously, we would show a respect and a reverence for God. Everybody's afraid that you're going to be too flippant about it, that you're not going to address God properly. Children can do that. I like to use parents and children. Your your children can say things that are rude to you, can't they? I mean, they can be disrespectful. But they can also have wonderful, endearing names for you that, that, again, only they can call you. And that's the kind of relationship that we want to have through Jesus Christ with our Heavenly Father. Now, your praying is affective when you remember God has promised. That's the remaining verses. In his next statements, Jeremiah remembered that God had made a covenant. He'd made a promise with the Jews. Verse 19... Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good, and for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your namesake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you have made all these. Jeremiah was hardcore. God told him to quit praying for and seeking the good of Judah, but here he boldly again asked the Lord to bring rain. Jeremiah knew God could never utterly and totally reject Judah on account of his covenant to them through Abraham and David. Some of those promises were conditional upon their obedience, but many of them were unconditional. And that's why Israel exists in the land even today. That's why God is not through and never will be through with the nation of Israel. Now, God has promised you and I so much more, really, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, eternal rewards, a mansion in a forever city where the Lord is the light and the life of that place. How can I not be affected Internally, when I think about all that the Lord has done, our attitude should be that expressed by Jeremiah in the last thing he said, therefore, we will wait for you. It's a particular type of waiting. Let's call it power waiting. We wait, trusting in the infallibility of his promises. Do you like to wait for anything? I'm not a waiter. I don't like to wait in lines. There's only a few things I would actually wait in line for. And while I'm waiting, I'm upset, and I'm watching other people wait, and I'm getting more upset because of the way they're waiting and how they're, you know, holding a place for 27 other people, you know? And so I think I'm 12th in line, but I'm 39th in line because that guy represents a family reunion or something. So I'm not a good waiter. I don't like to wait. I, I, how long do you wait at a red light before you decide it's, it's broke? That happens sometimes, right? And you just—and it's always just as I'm ready to gun through it, you know, then it goes green. And so, but you know, sometimes it's—it's. It's, I remember not too long ago there was a situation like that. Where I had to get out of my car and go to the gal in front of me and say, "I, I think this light is broken. We've been here for five minutes. Can you move? If you don't want to go, I do. You know, that kind of a thing." And so, there's a kind of waiting, however. Uh, Because of the presence of God and the promises of God, my whole life as as a human being, I am waiting for something to happen. And what is that? I'm waiting to be resurrected from the dead or raptured so that I will enter into the glory that God actually has planned for me. And so we do power waiting. While all the world is going on and we saw the crazy stuff and elections come and go and our health is failing and people are dying and all the tragedies, we are power waiting because God has made us absolute promises that he cannot renege upon. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's preparing a mansion for us. He'll reward us. Our rewards are going to be kept safe in heaven. We're going to live forever. Verse 1 of chapter 15, Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Moses and Samuel were two great Old Testament intercessors. Moses told God, If he didn't spare the Israelites, go ahead and blot my name out of the book of life. That's, that's an intercessor. You're going to judge these people? I'll trade places with them or just you kill me. Samuel once said, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Only someone in constant intercession could say that. The mention of these two giants put Jeremiah in that category. Jeremiah was one of God's great intercessors, even though his intercessory prayers would not be effective. Now, the remaining verses of our text express more of the coming judgment, but as we'll see, there's going to be an interesting insight to prayer that we'll focus on. So let's just read verses two through nine, and then we'll come back and comment on verse four. Verse two, it shall be, if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, such as are for famine to the famine, such as are for captivity to captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble, to all the kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young man, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes who has borne seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Let's concentrate on verse 4. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. He was the king who began Judah's downfall into idolatry. He was king from 696 to 642 BC. One Bible dictionary described his reign this way, I quote, The abominations of various lands, especially Babylon, were brought together by Manasseh at Jerusalem. Altars for Balaam, groves, uh, and altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the Lord's house. He caused two his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the sons of Hinnom the old Moloch worship of Ammon. And in imitation of the Babylonians, observed times, enchantments, witchcraft, and dealt with a familiar spirit and wizards. A religion of sensuous intoxication reigned on all sides. He made a graven image of the Asherah, the obscene emblem of phallic worship for which women dedicated to impurity wove hangings in Jehovah's house. Sodomites' houses stood nigh to Jehovah's house for the vilest purposes in the name of religion. Jehovah's altar was cast down, the ark was displaced, the Sabbath, the weekly witness for God, was ignored. Now, here's something important to realize. In 701 BC, Hezekiah became seriously ill. Isaiah warned the king to prepare for his imminent death But Hezekiah prayed that God would intervene. God answered by promising Hezekiah 15 additional years of life. Great story, except it was during those bonus years that Manasseh was born. Hezekiah also did a few weird things in those 15 years. One commentator stated bluntly, it would have been far better both for Hezekiah and the whole nation of Judah if Hezekiah had died on God's original timetable. If Hezekiah had died on schedule, Manasseh would never have lived and deep national rebellion and dissipation would not have taken hold if Hezekiah had not been given 15 additional years. If you judge prayer strictly by its effectiveness, Hezekiah had an incredibly effective prayer life, did he not? Hezekiah prayed, turned his face to the wall, he cried out to God, he says, God, I don't want to die right now, extend my life. And what does God do? He answered that prayer. That's effective prayer. It's the kind of prayer we'd love to have. You get the diagnosis or someone in your family gets the diagnosis that they've got something incurable, they've got six months or six years to live, You want to go before the Lord and say, Lord, extend their life. Heal them. And I'm not saying it's wrong always to do that, obviously not. But in Hezekiah's case, be careful what you pray for. Because he ended, he kind of ruined his testimony in those 15 years. And Manasseh was produced in those 15 years, who led to this terrible destruction of Judah not too many years after. For his part, Jeremiah's intercession accomplished nothing for Judah. But God elevated Jeremiah to the status of Moses and Samuel while letting us know that Hezekiah's son Manasseh was a problem. God looks upon prayer much differently than we do. An effective prayer life is one more affective achieved by having a sense of God's presence in my life and God's promises for my life. And so the bottom line is this, very simple. Prayer is talking to God. So talk to God, do it all the time. He is not a distant force. He is your closest friend. Let's pray.